who have a Bible with you. It will also be on the screen. Would you turn with me to the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 1. And we're going to read the first eight verses together. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, the end of the New Testament. Read from verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. We're carrying on with our series working through the book of Revelation. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 3. This week we're going to look at verses 4 to 8. But before we do, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, will you guide us as we look at your word together? Will you speak to us through your spirit here this morning? Speak into our hearts the things we need to hear, whether that's encouragement, instruction, rebuke, Show us more of Christ and your gospel, we pray. Amen. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? Put your hand up if you did. It doesn't have to be too high if you're a little bit embarrassed. But one, two, three. Okay, promise me, no looking. Put your hand down if you've already broken your New Year's resolution resolution. Oh, 50%. It wasn't many who owned up to New Year's resolution, but 50% have already broken them. It's only two weeks into the new year. One of the things that we learn from New Year's resolutions is that it's easy to start something, easy to make a New Year's resolution, but it's difficult to continue with it. Let me give you an example. When I came back off sabbatical in the beginning of December, I made several resolutions. One of them was this. I resolved to keep a better level of fitness. That included a better diet, 
and not snacking in the evenings. So, 1st of December came by, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to stick at it. And then the 5th of December came by, and it was the officers' meeting at Jamie's house. And Carrie had been baking. Plate of freshly baked shortbread. What was I going to do? It smelled nice. I do like freshly baked shortbread, but it's not my favourite. So I said no. Sorry, Carrie, that's nothing to do. (laughs) Everything's going okay, and then the 9th of January comes round. Officers meeting at Jamie Johnson's. But Jamie's up the ante. Donuts and chocolates. No, I wasn't going to eat them. But then Friday the 12th of January came round, and Anita said to me, Shall we open the Pringles? (laughs) And the resolution was broken. It's easy to start something. We have these great ideas. Let's go for it. But it's hard to keep going. That's not just true of resolutions. That's true in life. It's often easier to begin something than to continue. And let me let you into a secret. It's true in the Christian life too. It's true when it comes to faith in God. It's true when it comes to following God. It's a lot easier to begin than it is to continue. Especially when you're surrounded by people who make it hard for you to follow Christ. They make fun of you. They don't want you to follow Christ. They make it difficult. It's hard when you feel different from those around you because you're following Jesus. It's hard when life gets tough and God doesn't do the things you want him to do. That's one of the reasons why God has given us the book of Revelation. It's because of difficult stuff that happens in the world on an international scale, on a national scale, on a community scale and on a personal scale. We're going to live through hard stuff, God says, but God wants to encourage us to stand firm in our faith. And he gets into that encouragement even here in the introduction to the letter. See, maybe you're a new Christian here today. And maybe you're starting to ask the question, what have I done giving my life to God? Because you're realising that things are changing in your life and maybe you're missing what was used to be there. If you're not asking that question, it will probably come in the near future. Maybe you've been a Christian for a time and you're looking at what other people have and what other people can do and you're starting thinking, well, actually, I'd kind of like that life too, that freedom to do what I want. Why should I stick with faith in God? Or maybe here this morning, you're looking on. You've heard Ashley's testimony. You you know other Christians and you're looking on and you're thinking, well, why would I want that? Why would I want to follow this God? Well, this morning, I want to look at these verses in Revelation 1, verses 4 to 8. And I want us to see what they tell us about God And my prayer is that God will help us to see that he's a God worth 
trusting with our lives. Here's our question this morning. Why stick with God? Why stick with God? First reason, because God cares for his people. God cares for his people. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in Asia. This is a sort of custom form of a letter. In the, in the days when this was written, it would begin with the, the person who's writing it, John the Apostle, the disciple of Jesus, to the seven churches in Asia. And we're going to look a little bit more at who those seven churches were um, in uh, subsequent weeks. These seven churches in modern-day Turkey. And then he carries on. Grace and peace to you, from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. What do we see about God here? Well, we see that God wants good things for his people. This word from is repeated three times. Uh, And this greeting of grace and peace is from three people. The first is God the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And and John identifies his eternity, the fact that he always is. The second one's a little bit more tricky, from the seven spirits before his throne. Some people look at that and think, well, maybe these are seven angelic beings. I think the most likely explanation is that this is A symbolic picture of the Holy Spirit. Why is he described in plural, though? That's a question that kind of needs to be answered and we don't really have an answer to. It might be to do with the fact that there are seven letters to seven churches and at the end of those letters it says, hear what the Spirit, singular, says to these churches. It might be connected to that. But if we think of Revelation, remember this is symbolic pictures indicating straightforward truth. Seven spirits, this is a symbolic picture of the perfect Holy Spirit. So from the Father, from the Spirit, and then from the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, referring to his office as prophet, the one who speaks God's word. The first one from the dead, referring to his office as priest, the one who has sacrificed his life for us and risen from the dead. And then the ruler of the kings of the earth, his office as king, the one who reigns and rules upon the throne. What we have here is a greeting from the Father, the Spirit, the Son, from the triune God in his entirety. You want to think of it like that. The Bible teaches one God who is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this God gives greetings to the churches. But what is his greeting? What is the desire of God's heart for his people? It's grace. Grace means undeserved Kindness. It is the constant presence of his smile upon our lives. It's something good for us. And then the second is peace. Now, peace in the Bible is more than just the absence of conflict. It refers to a wholeness of a wellness, of a completeness of person, of a contentment in life. I don't know if you picked up as we listened to Ashley's 
testimony as he talked about his life before Christ. It wasn't a life where he had peace in his heart. But that changed when he met Jesus. God's heart for his people is a heart that desires to pour out his grace, his undeserved kindness, and his peace, wellness and contentment and wholeness into their lives. God wants good things for his people. He cares for his people. If we then go on uh, through verse 5, we also see God loves his people. There's a depth to this affection. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. Uh, There's a reason, I think, why love and the cross, the, the blood of Jesus, are connected here. Because it's the cross where Jesus shows his love for us most completely. John says, I want you to realize that as we talk about the triune God, particularly here as we talk about the Son, he loves you. That love, though, is not restricted to the Son. In Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the heart of God for his people. He loves his people. Now, what does that mean? I, I want to be clear on something here. That does not mean that God will give us anything we want. That's often how we interpret it. God loves me. That, therefore, that means he has to give me everything I want. But love doesn't work like that. I want you to imagine... Um, You don't need to imagine it. If you're a parent, you you don't need to imagine it. If you're a child, you've had a parent, so you can think about your parents. I want you to imagine a parent-child relationship. And a parent is supposed to love their child, so think about how a parent will love their child in this scenario. The child has told their parents, the only food I like is chocolate. I don't like lettuce, I don't like cabbage, I don't like Brussels sprouts, I don't like chicken, I don't like anything, I only like chocolate. Now, does the parent love that child by giving in to what they want? They only want chocolate. Okay, so this is what happens. Morning drink, hot chocolate. Breakfast, Chocolate flakes with chocolate milk. Snack time, a bar of chocolate. Lunch time, chocolate sandwich. That's two dairy milk bars with chocolate spread in between. A chocolate apple. No, chocolate orange for your fruit. And a snack bar. Well, that'll be a chocolate bar. And and then when you come in, well, I've got these special chocolate, um, they're pasta-shaped chocolates, and you can... That would not be a loving thing to do to that child. Because that much chocolate is not good for any of us. No, the parent will sit down and say, no, here's your cornflakes. And if you don't eat them for breakfast, you'll have them for lunch. I know they'll be soggy, but you'll have to eat them. And if you don't eat them for lunch, you'll have them for dinner. And if you don't eat them for dinner, you'll have them tomorrow for breakfast. Because it's important that you have the right food that's good for you. There is more than cornflakes that's good for you, just to 
point, point that out. But you get the point. Love does not equate to giving someone everything they want. Love equals doing what's good for someone. And when it comes to God, what can we guarantee from his word? He will always do what's good for us. Because he loves us. And he's shown us that by giving his son to die for us on the cross. I'd encourage you with this. God is a safe person to give your life to. God is a safe person to give your life to. To Over the last 10, 15 years, we've been bombarded by accounts of people who have abused the trust that has been given to them. People that maybe we grew up thinking were, were great celebrities, but turned out to have abused trust in horrendous ways. We hear stories of bullying and harm and mistreatment. Even this last week, we recognize that this has happened within churches. And maybe, maybe just the memory of that triggers it for you because you've experienced it and so you're very guarded in who you trust. Or maybe you look on and you just think, is there anyone we can trust? Can I tell you this morning, God is not like that. He's perfect and he loves you. And he will never abuse your trust. And he will never merely use you for his own ends. His heart, his desire, which flows through everything he does, is for your good. Romans tells us that he orders everything in creation for the good of those who love him. So we hear of Ashley's faith in Jesus. Maybe there's others that you hear of their faith in Jesus. That faith is not misplaced because he cares for his people. That's the first thing we see of God here. Secondly, he saves his people. He saves his people. Look at the second half of verse 5 and into verse 6. To him who loves us, here the focus is on the Son and on his work of salvation. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. John says, praise Jesus. Because of what he has done for us. Because of the salvation he's given us. Three things I want to mention from this passage and into verse 7. First of all, we're told that Jesus saves us from our sins. He has set us free from our sins by his blood. The Bible says that every one of us is a sinner. Now, I know that's a negative word, and maybe it's not one that you like to hear or, or we like to use, but it's the one the Bible uses about us. It means this, that we do what we want, not what God wants. That's what a sinner is. Someone who does what they want, not what God wants. It's an attitude. I'm in charge of my life, not God's. And it's an action. I want to do this thing, so I'm going to do it. I don't care what God has to say about it. 
A sinner is someone who says, God, you're not in charge of me. I decide what's right and what's wrong. It's an attitude of rebellion against the king who made us. And we see that attitude on an international level, we see it on a national level, we see it on a personal level in our own hearts. So the Bible says we're sinners, but also the Bible says that sin holds us captive. It has a power over us. It has a power because it's what we want to do. We can't not want to do it. We are born wanting our own way and not God's way. And we can't change that on our own. And then it holds us captive by guilt. As we break God's commands, we know it's wrong. We feel bad about it, which is why we distract ourselves with so many things. But also we build up a whole list of sin that deserves to be punished by God. It holds us captive. But when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin. And if we trust in him, that power is gone and we're set free. There's a great verse in Colossians which describes the cross in this way. It says, he erased the certificate of debt. He's he's like a piece of paper with all the times that we have rebelled against God on it. It's a long list for every single one of us. And, And he says, Jesus just wiped it clean, got rid of it all. How? He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He destroyed it by dying on the cross. The, the picture here, nailing it to the cross, if you read the Gospels, um, at the top of the cross was put a sign that said, Jesus, King of the, the Jews. That sign would have the charge that was brought against the person, the, the crime that they had committed. And that's what's being referred to here, nailed to the cross. And, and it's as if Paul, as he writes it, is saying, come on, come close to the cross and look at that sign. And what will you see as you look at it? You will see all the things that you have done wrong before God. Why? Because the crimes that he died for were not his own. He was innocent. The crimes he died for were yours and mine. He saves us from our sin. Secondly, he saves us from our separation from him. The Bible says we are separated from God because of our sins. We are outside of his kingdom. But here in Christ, we have been made a kingdom and priests. We have been made part of his people and those who represent him to the world and have access to him in prayer. That's the priesthood part. Now, I don't know how you manage not being able to sleep. I don't know how you manage that situation. You you go to bed, your head hits the pillow, you think, I'm really tired, it's going to come easily tonight, and it doesn't. When I was in my 20s, this was the technique I used. I'm not advising it. It might not be helpful for you, but this is what I used. I used to imagine, I'm an Arsenal football club fan, okay? so I used to imagine I was playing football in the park... 
and Arsene Wenger was walking through the park and saw me playing. And he came over and said, I want you to come to training on Monday morning. And I would go and train on Monday morning. It would take me two months to get fitness. And then I'd be put in um, to the Arsenal team. I'd be playing defensive midfielder. But I would be the top goal scorer because I was so good at playing midfield. And these... I never got past the second game and I was asleep. So I kind of daydreamed myself to sleep. As I think back on those, it was complete fiction. One, I never played football in the park. And two, Arsene Wenger didn't live anywhere near the park where I was. And three, if he saw me play, there would be no chance that he would say, come, come to training on, on money. Complete fiction. But the thing that made me feel good about it was being part of the team. I wasn't part of the team, then I was part of the team. And that's kind of why I mention it. In our sin, we are outside, separated from God. But in Christ, not because God walked through the park and said, oh, look, you look like a good person to have in my kingdom. We're sinners who deserve his judgment. But God in Christ brings us and makes us part of his team. We become part of his kingdom. And not just on the edges, we are part of his priesthood. 1 Peter 2 puts it like this. As you come to him, a living stone, this is Jesus. As you come to Jesus, Jesus who was rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In Christ, God saves us from our separation from him. And then as we go into verse 7, he saves us from future judgment. This verse speaks about the return of Jesus. Look, he is coming with the clouds. This is this great um, cataclysmic event of the return of Jesus that is talked about in Daniel and in other books of the Bible. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And then this next statement, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. It's a a little bit difficult from what I understand to translate. But it essentially means this. As people look on Jesus, their hearts will be torn up. Why? Because Jesus is coming to gather his church, which is a joyful thing. But Jesus is also coming to judge the world of sin. This is the reality. This is the future that is ahead. But in Christ, in his son, through the cross, for those who trust in him, God saves us from future judgment. So that on that day when Jesus returns, we have nothing to fear because sin has been dealt with. Can I say this this morning? Trusting God matters more than anything else. Think about this. What do you gain by not putting your faith in Jesus? What do you gain by not putting your faith in Jesus? 
Here, John is writing to Christians. Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. Prison, for some of them, was a reality. Uh, Prevention from joining in with other stuff that's going on in the community was a reality for them. So if they turned their back on Jesus, they might get freedom. Freedom from prison, freedom to join in. Uh, No more persecution. For us, what might we get? People maybe not looking at us oddly. Are you a Christian? What's that about? Isn't that old-fashioned? You'd have your Sunday mornings and evenings to do whatever you wanted. Maybe that feels quite appealing at some points. You don't have to come to church. There's no compulsion to do that. What do you gain by not putting your faith in Jesus? And how does that compare to what we gain by putting our faith in Jesus? How does it compare to forgiveness of sins? How does it compare to being one of God's people? How does it compare to safety and hope as we look forward to the judgment of God? I encourage you to think about that. You see, as Ashley has become a Christian, and we're, we're celebrating that today and baptizing him, that is the best thing that could ever have happened to Ashley. And the same is true for all of us. The best thing that can ever happen to us is knowing Christ and having our faith in him. He saves his people, and then thirdly, he can guarantee the future. He can guarantee the future. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Three things quickly from that verse. What are we told about God? He's the Lord of all history. The Alpha and the Omega. This is the first and the last letter of the classic Greek alphabet. The A to Z of history. He starts history and he will be the one who's standing at the end of history. Now, I don't know how you feel, but some world leaders, um, particularly the bad ones, seem to cling to power forever. Remember when Mugabe was president of Zimbabwe? He just seemed to be there forever. Castro in Cuba. Putin now in Russia. They just seem to be there forever. But they won't be. But God will be. He's the Lord of all history. He's the unchanging God. What are you told? The one who is, who was, and who is to come. The one who is present, who is past, and who is future. And who has always been the same in the past, in the present, and in the future. There's a point in the Old Testament where God appears to a guy called Moses, who was a leader of Israel. And he appears to Moses uh, through a burning bush. And as he talks to Moses, uh, you, you understand that the person talking to Moses is the all-powerful God who is mighty beyond compare, and he is also the caring God who is compassionate towards his people. And then at one point, Moses says, because Moses is being told, I want you to go to my people and tell them what I've told you. And Moses said, well... Who should I say sent me? In effect, what's your name? And so God replies, I am who I am. 
This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am. That's a name that indicates this eternity. I am. doesn't matter if you go into the past. I am, he says. In the present, I am. In the future, I am. He is always present and the same in whatever time you find him. Because he is the unchanging, eternal God. That means, in the context of Revelation here, at no point is he not in control of what's going on. And at no point will he abandon his people and his promises. He's the unchanging God. And then it closes with a reminder, he is the all-powerful God. We've seen something of this with the description of Jesus in verse 5, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Remember, as we come to Revelation, we're reading a letter that was written at the height of the Roman Empire, where the emperor of Rome seemed to have all the power on earth. And what are we told about Jesus? Well, Jesus is the person who is the king of those human kings. He has an authority that far exceeds Caesar. I don't know if you've noticed, um, but in in lots of ways, if you you get some sort of authority, uh, that's all well and good, but there's always somebody above you that's in charge. Um, I remember a a dad uh, telling me about a conversation uh, with his son once. He was trying to explain to his son uh, that he, as the dad, was the boss of the son. So it went on and he explained it and it seemed like the son had got it until he said yes. But mummy's the boss of you. There's always someone else, isn't there? Someone else, someone else. But when it comes to Jesus, there's no one who's the boss of Jesus. He is the king over all human kings, over everything. In Ephesians, we're told he was given the title that is above every title, authority above every authority, the seat above every seat. And here at the end, that authority and power is summarized in one word and attributed to God the Father. He is the all-powerful, the almighty God. Can I tell you this this morning? God is the only person who truly deserves our trust. Because no one else can guarantee the future. If you doubt that, just look at a weather forecast and then look at what the weather does in two or three days' time. There's so much science that goes into the weather forecast. There's so much knowledge that goes in, so much past parameters that are fed in to spit out this weather forecast, but how often is it right if you use the app called AccuWeather, which is supposed to be accurate to the minute, uh, I can sit in my um, conservatory on a, on a morning uh, looking at the screen that's telling me there will be no rain today and it's raining. God alone has the power. God alone has the authority. God alone has the constancy to bring about the good he promises for his people. Only he can guarantee 
the future. We hear of Ashley trusting in God, others trusting in God, as we think maybe of our own faith in God, of committing our lives into his hands, trusting in his promises. That is not a waste, because God can do what he says, and God will do what he says. So why stick with God? It's a question we all ask at some point. You haven't done it yet, you will. What are we told here? God loves his people. He's committed to our good. God saves his people. He does for us what nobody else can do. And we need that salvation. And he can guarantee the future. What he says will happen. And no one else can say that. In a moment... I'm going to baptise Ashley as a statement of his faith in God. This God who cares, this God who saves, this God who guarantees the future. If you haven't already put your faith in God, I want to encourage you to think about it for yourself. I guess a good question would be to ask yourself this. What's holding me back? Why shouldn't I commit my life to such a God as this. Let's pray. Father, help us to realize, to see, to know what you are like and to give our lives to you this morning. Maybe we've we've never done that before. I pray that you would show yourself to us that we would do it for the first time. Maybe we're struggling. Maybe we have doubts. Maybe we're finding the grass greener on the other side of the fence. We pray that you would remind us what you are like, that our trust may be in you. Amen.